friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. In this repeat episode from our archives, first published in 2019, my guest is my friend Mike Weinberg. Mike's a consultant, a speaker, author of three excellent books, including his latest book, which we're going to talk about in this episode, titled Sales Truth, Debunk the Myths, Apply Powerful Principles, Win More New Sales. Mike and I always have a great time talking about sales, so I warn you, this episode runs a bit longer than normal because once we got started talking, it was hard to stop. So we're going to look at some of the popular myths about sales that you know, sort of echoing around the echo chamber of LinkedIn these days. We'll also dive deep into some of the key themes in Mike's book, including why sellers need to be more discriminating about the sales advice they follow, how to avoid being stuck in the procurement pit, and how to work with procurement to get the outcomes that you need. So all that and much, much more before we get to Mike, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it with Mike Weinberg. Mike, welcome back to the show. Andy, it's good to be back here. <laughs> it's always fun to have you here. So uh, yeah, we're here to sort of celebrate the publication of your latest book uh, titled Sales Truths, Debunk the Myths. Apply powerful principles, win more new sales. So, yeah, the first part of the book is a bit of a, what do I want to call the first part of the book? I don't call it a rant, but I mean, it's that, that doesn't give it enough justice. So it's, it's a critique, let's say. Uh, yeah, part rant, part expose, part, part righteous anger, honestly, just from what I'm seeing. So, yeah. so I felt like someone had to say it, you know? Yeah, well, I, I would go as far as expose, because if it was expose, you would have name to name. So you were very careful. Not Though we could, it was sort of like one of these fictional novels, you could sort of tell who you're talking about. But so you sort of lead off the book saying, hey, you have to be wary of nouveau experts and false teachers. That's a quote from one of your chapter titles. So you know, as, I, as I was reading the first part of the book, uh, I sort of think to myself, well, okay, well, this is a section probably a lot of people wish they had written. Um, so who are these people, these false experts? Well, they're everywhere. Um, and I was, I was attempting to be respectful in not naming names. Um, I, I, it's more the movement and, and the, the nonsense that I'm angry at, not the individuals per se mm-hmm. or, the, or the medium when we'll get into that, uh, social selling in particular. But, you know, what compelled me, Andy, was really simple. What I was reading online from those nouveau experts particularly on LinkedIn. I think that's because that LinkedIn is the cesspool for sales advice. <laughs> there's, no, there's no barrier to entry. All you need is a name and a login and a keyboard, and you are a self-proclaimed thought yeah. leader. So what I was reading on LinkedIn from some relatively popular sales experts mm-hmm. about what it takes to succeed in sales today was very different from what I was seeing with my own eyes in real companies where I'm consulting, training, coaching, speaking, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So over the last few years, my anger and frustration and concern just built to the place where I said, I got to call out. I got to call this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote these people using their own words from their own posts of the nonsense, this garbage. Uh, it's pathetic what passes for sales advice today. And I'm going to compare that to what I'm seeing. And that's where the two parts of the book, part one is here's what I'm hearing the experts say. And then part two is here are the best practices I'm really seeing to create new opportunities, to advance them through the pipe, to own your process, to not get commoditized, right? And what are the very best sellers doing today? So that's kind of what drove me. And uh, the, the nonsense I'm mostly addressing in part one that you asked about is 
the message that's very prevalent, which is everything in sales has changed and nothing that used to work still works. In fact, if you dare deploy traditional methods like prospecting, like the telephone, um, you're not only stupid and going to fail, but you're a Luddite from the dark ages and we should ridicule you for even trying. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I had to draw the line and go, stop. <laughs> and I'll just I'll wrap this part by saying my anger and my concern comes out of the fact that it's typically the gullible and weaker seller that falls for the nonsense. Sure, that, looking for the quick uh, fix. The easy body. Yeah, it's like me. I'm fat because I eat too many carbs and don't don't have enough cardio exercise, right? Like, let's be honest. Like, but when when people online start preaching, well, you eat all you want, and you you know, just if you just tweet and blog and put out great content, they'll run to you when they're fifty seven percent through the buying process. That's not true, and that's where the, I just felt like I had to address it. Yeah, well, and that's <laughs> my assessment is of a lot of the advice that's online is that. Yeah, and appeals to people that want sort of a quick fix, but but it's also disproportionately focused at the top of the funnel, and and so what I don't see is, and I this is part of the reason I started the sales house and the work that I do is that yeah, it's not about selling, it's about lead gen, mm. and. And I think that one of the big holes that exists for many sales organizations is they invest a disproportionate amount of their time and effort on top of funnel. And even if they have opportunities, they really do a really, <laughs> excuse my French, but piss poor job of, yeah. of getting to the point where they can actually win. And we have you know, this whole segment of the SaaS segment that, that you know, these companies are subsisting on like 20% win rates. Which, as I said when I was keynoting to an audience of SaaS sellers a couple weeks ago, that really sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny you brought up the, the funnel on the stages. I was just listening uh, to get back in the mood and drink some more Andy Paul content. And <laughs> I listened to just one of your recent episodes with that gentleman from overseas where you were talking about the middle of the funnel yeah. and how important it is there. His name is escaping Steve, me. But Steve, it, Steve Norman. Yeah, yeah. Boy, in his content and his book, I know he's from overseas, so it, it should have a lot more. Uh, his, his book has a solid content in there. It should oh, it be more popular than it is. Yeah. I, so I applaud you for having him on. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, win rates are a big deal. And I we could have a whole conversation about that. Um, but it seems then, like people aren't really focused on it, though. And this is, this is the part that drives me nuts. Is, you know, I'll talk to CROs of prominent companies that are growing quickly. And I talk to them about their growth rates. It's it's come to the point where basically they're just playing the odds, right? If I get enough crap into the top of the funnel, I know a certain percentage is going to flow through. And I say, well, what are you doing to you know, increase your win rates? What are you doing to be more effective at discovery, qualification, the things in the middle of the funnel that, that I believe make the difference between winning and losing, and there's no attention being paid or very scant attention being paid to it. Yeah, boy, it, it's, well, it's bad everywhere. Because I, I see, I have in, in my client base, it's, it's worse the other way. It's worse where they're ignoring the top of the funnel. Mm-hmm. So, but I see it both. When I get frustrated where, where you're going is the lack of ownership of a sound sales process. And I'm relatively agnostic about process. You know, sure. approach it a lot of different ways, but I see this demo first, right? Like we go in in pitch mode, especially in the software world right. and everyone's being evaluated on how many demos. So we're, we don't do good qualification and, and we don't know what questions to ask and we don't, understand uh, the prospect's current state or desired future state mm-hmm. going into the demo, right? Mm-hmm. I, I read mm-hmm. Keenan's book, right? Gap Selling. And uh, he does a great job articulating. I love what he said there. He says, you know what? 
no discovery, no demo. And I'm mm-hmm. like standing freaking ovation. Uh, so there's, there's the lack of ownership of the process there. And then later on where you're getting commoditized because we have weak sellers that are also doing whatever the prospect asks. I have a client, a SaaS client, and one of their, their best salespeople is, is wonderful, but she's also very compliant to everything that the prospect asks because she wants to be likable and she is likable. But a lot of times when we, we do everything they ask us, we end up falling into what I call the procurement pit, right? You're just another vendor being put in a box and you haven't sure. differentiated yourself in your approach. So I don't know if that's where you go, but well, win rate's a big deal. Yeah, it is. So we'll get back to win rate. But to your okay. idea about compliance, though, because I think this is one of the real problems, because certainly what what we're seeing relative to the growth of inside sales is largely sort of emanated out of out of the valley and, and is spreading into industries other than tech. And, and like I said, it's, it can be extremely valuable, right? But what I find ironic, especially coming out of uh, the valley with software companies, SaaS companies, is that their sales processes, the point you made before, is, you know, it's, I, I, I've said this before, it's so ironic that these companies who are founded to be disruptive rely on the most compliance, conformity-based selling processes possible, right? And so sellers aren't being given the opportunity to develop their own strengths and skills, develop their own unique sales process, taking advantage of their own strengths. And this, I think this contributes to the problem. Yeah, totally. It's, it's a mess. Uh, either you're trying to create cookie-cutter people that, that aren't allowed to sell in their own style, and that's, that's a whole issue, or they're just not aware. Well, I tell you, along similar lines, I'm seeing salespeople that are not aware that you can push back on a prospect. So, you know, I hear you. Let me share with you, however, what we found is better. I need to meet these other people. I need to have these meetings. If we're going to help you sell this internally, if we're going to get you the outcome you want, I need to do my job. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in just lining up the ducks and filling in your boxes and doing the dog and pony show. I, I need to tailor what we're going to present to you and we're, what we're going to come up with based on what I learned. And if I can't get that access, I'm going to consider backing away. But don't and you... Th- I'm sorry to interrupt, but don't you think that's a problem coming from manager? This idea about the culture that we talked about is that, you know, if I've got this tightly defined linear sales, stage-based sales process with these tightly defined exit criteria, so on and so forth, is, yeah, people are, aren't going to, there's no incentive to push back because really what they want to do is check the boxes so they can tell their management, this is what we did. Yeah, they're being micromanaged is what you're saying it through a very a very rigid process that they've over engineered. Right. So so they're trying to get through it. You know, it's funny. I was going to ask you, are you in California or New York? But hearing the siren, I'm like, well, now I, I know I know where you are. It's awesome. You're in the city. All I want is a slice of New York pizza when I hear that sound. Well, you know? get out here. We'll go do it. I I forgot to close my windows. So. It wouldn't have mattered. You it would come through anyway. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that, audience. Yeah, now yeah. you know secrets out. I'm in New York City today. Yeah. Don't track him down. But he you can't find him today because the this airs will not he won't be there so no, been many places before yeah. then so yeah yeah but yeah this is this is i think is is and we sort of touched on it in two different ways now is that i think that i always contrast this to the way i came up in sales i worked for big companies we had processes uh but i had managers to say look Go figure this out, right? The way that works best for you. You don't need to be the same as everybody else. And I was given that freedom and latitude mm-hmm. to do it. I was given the rope to hang myself, quite virtually. But I mean, it's it's. But the thing is, you know, 
so, it doesn't it so, doesn't happen as much these days because we want people to be clones. And but let's go down that path. I mean, because yeah. you just you're bringing back memories of my early sales managers and even senior executives who mentored me. Right. You know, one of my great frustrations, and it's and it's a topic from another book. But uh, where the sales mentors go? Where are the managers that take the pride in de- mentoring and developing their people instead of checking boxes and living with their head buried in a screen? And it, it, to your point, you know, enforcing some overly rigid process that some engineer built. Where is the development of business acumen and mentoring and relational skill and you mm-hmm. and the things where you had great bosses like I did that built that into us? One of my fears for the younger generation is so weird that we are old now. Uh, you know, we, oh, and we speak can, for yourself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> my, senior, my friend who's senior. Um, you know, I, I don't see it, Andy. I think I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt my business or yours, but some other reason we have so much demand is because the managers in these roles are not developing their people and the consequence is horrible. Mm-hmm. We have these amateur sellers in the field getting commoditized, getting outsold with the win rate you're talking about because no one has shown them this is how you do it. And whether it was my dad or bosses or managers or peers, I have story after story after story of top sellers who showed me what it's like and, and what they brought to the job. And today, I don't see that. I see everything head down, in the screen, CRM, and it, that's not helping. It's not helping at all. Yeah, over the, last, uh, over the last couple weeks, I've been talking to several AISP chapters about mm-hmm. qualification, or about discovery, actually. And obviously, qualification flows from it, but really about discovery. And you know, there's some very tactical things you can do in discovery that have an impact on your ability to win the deal. And it's this tactical smarts Right, that plays into winning business that seems to be, com- I don't want to say completely absent, but largely absent from the way people are being brought up and mentored. To your point, is precisely it's like I, I go sort of chapter and verse, you know, th- how even how things how you qualify people. I mean, there's some things I, I've taught that I learned that I've taught people that make a substantial difference in your ability to win a piece of business based on how you qualify, how you discovery, how you do needs analysis. That that's it. Just seems to be lacking, and so when you have these, I'm giving these talks. It's amazing people writing these notes down. It's like, yeah, you know, this is senior people writing the notes down because it's like, yeah, you know, this is our 101 type stuff that we're just not educating people in. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. I know we're here to talk about my book, but I'm going to talk about your book, amp up your sales. What well, what would happen? I think I might have even written this in an endorsement. What would happen if people implemented 20 percent of the sales process tips that are in amp up your sales? I mean, you know, and I know, right? And there's no, there's no great rocket science in there, but it's, it's exactly what has to happen to, do, to, to follow and execute and learn what you need to learn. So you speed up the deal, right? I don't know who yeah. said it. it was Curlin or wherever I read it, Mahan Kalsa, like some, you know, but the, the, the reality that sometimes to speed up the sale, you have to slow down the sales process and you do the right things along the way. And people are lazy or they're ignorant and they're looking for the shortcut. Right. And they're looking for the easy button and they want they think there's a hack. If I just do this thing, then everything will fall into place. But that doesn't exist in sales. No. And I I think this whole sort of hacking sales mentality is, again, it's really oriented sort of top of funnel, which is is problematic because it really is. You and I know it's really at the beginning where you you build those relationships that enable you to do things that you talk about in your book, like push back. Right. The way you're the reason you're able to push back on a buyer, which. Yeah, you know, this is sort of a la the challenger, but you know, mm-hmm. it's a more of a mindset as you talk about it. 
which I always had, which was, you know, the customer's not always right. right. And also, they're there to learn. Just like we're there to learn, they're there to learn. And it's very rarely, in my experience, you run across somebody who's completely closed-minded, a, a buyer, about a better way to do something. Boy, that's really good. I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, I didn't tell this story in the book, but it's, it's a story from my client, Teradata. And they're one of the few companies I talk about publicly because they've been public about our work together. Um, and one of their senior executives shared with me, one of the, the things they need to coach their, their sales force on more and more is pushing back on procurement. Because what's happened a few times when they sell one of their major, major solutions into a massive account, the, mm-hmm. the types of accounts, we all know these, these names in the tech mm-hmm. world, in the retail world, the banking world. Oftentimes, the actual client, the business person, right, who was over the line of business that needed this solution will come back to the Teradata supplier and say, right. why do we have this solution? Well, I, what is this? And, and they got to look and go, well, what you wanted, your procurement people didn't buy for you. What, what we went through the process and discovery and determined is what you needed for your solution. At the end of the day, when it got down to negotiating, your procurement people took all that crap out because they didn't want it. And it was just interesting where we can't let ourselves as professional sellers get in the position where our actual client, who's counting on us to produce a really good outcome for them, looks at us at the end of the day, wait a second, this isn't what I thought I was getting. (laughs) And well, the problem is because we got run over by procurement who started pulling things out to get the pricing or the terms they wanted. So it's very, very tenuous situation. You can be really careful because procure, and I'm going to say this just, and I'll take the flames that come back my way. I posted something from my chapter about not falling into the procurement pit mm-hmm. uh, on LinkedIn. And I actually, I got some pushback from salespeople who said, I could never do that, Mike. Um, if I push back, I'll lose. They won't like me. I, I don't have the, I don't have the guts or the rights. My company will kill me. And then a few procurement people commented and said, you know, Mike, you have the wrong attitude here. You should stop trying to defeat us and work around us. You should collaborate with us to get the right kind of solution. We have a role here. And I get ideally what they're saying would be, be true. But in practice, that's not what I see. In 100% of the situations that I've been in, the procurement people are the enemy. And I don't want to collaborate with the enemy. I want to <laughs> defeat them badly. I want to tell them to pound sand. And that's this. I, have a, I tell three yeah, you, stories you in threw, the book. You have, that's right. Pound sand, yes. Uh, of my company and the two other small companies where salespeople are having a lot of success by holding their ground and they're confident. And instead of acquiescing to the prospect and to procurement, they're pushing back and they're dictating and they're differentiating themselves, and they're having more fun, and they're selling bigger deals at higher margins and increasing their win rate because they're not rolling over and letting procurement steamroll them. So, yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, that was a good, a good part of the book because I, I think the lesson for most salespeople is, is to, to take away from that. And, and I gave a webinar on this not that long ago, is, is there's a way to procurement-proof your negotiations. And it's through the trade-offs you do with the buyer you know, your actual buyer, your customer, That's good. before it shows up in procurement. Because then when procurement goes back to the buyer and says, well, we're going to make this change, the buyer says, well, you can't do that because if they do that, they're going to reduce this, right? You want to lose the price? Well, they're going to lower the scope, and I can't do that to quarter in order to achieve my goals. And you can get it wrapped up really tightly so when it's delivered to procurement, they can't touch it because the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, you're sophisticated. You're, you're more sophisticated than I love hearing you talk about this. <laughs> I need to go to one of your next webinars when you tackle this. So that's awesome. Yeah, but that's, but that's the whole point, right? Is you do all that trade-offs, but this is what we're not teaching people, right? You do all that trade-offs before it gets to procurement. So it says just wrapped up, yeah, saran wrap, bulletproof, whatever you want to call it, and you can't touch it. Uh, I, I guess the Jenga maybe is the, uh, the best great. analogy. So, yeah. 
But I, yeah, I love to talk about punt because you know, and sellers don't feel enabled. And I think this comes also from again, I gotta put the blame on sales managers. Is yeah, I worked for people who enabled me to say no to them. And and as a manager, you have to learn to accept that maybe your people have a better way of doing things. Absolutely. And, and let them develop. Yeah. And because because you're not gonna win every deal too, you know, and, and there are times, and I've had this with clients, there are times when I'll push it, I'll push it, I'll push it, holding the line, holding the line. And at the end, if I have to, I'll acquiesce and play the prospects game because it's too big a deal. Sure. And if I really feel like we're about to get cut out, I'll I'll go. But I'm going to take it all the way to the limit, right? Right. And then then I'll then I'll relent and do what they want. And then there are times I'm like, no, I'm going to push the nuclear button, right? And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to risk blowing it all up because I don't think my chance of winning is is high enough if I play their game. I have to play my own game. So I feel like I'm giving myself every opportunity. I, I, I've been saying it this way lately, and I, I like how this has come out. I have two missions. I'm speaking for myself, but I'm saying if any professional seller mm-hmm. should have these missions. I have two missions. Number one, I want to win every deal mm-hmm. I can, mm-hmm. assuming that me winning is in the best interest of the, of the prospect. Right. And number two is I want to produce the highest and best value for the client that's buying yep. the service. So yep. I want to win. I want them to the best outcome. If the process that's being offered to me by procurement or by the prospect doesn't allow me to either A, have the best chance of winning, or B, produce the best outcome from them, that's when I draw the line and go, no, I'm sorry, I hear you, but I'm not going to follow those instructions because that's not going to get you what you want, and I'm wasting time. And it's amazing, the respect, and I I hope salespeople hear this, especially the highly relational, conflict-diverse seller that's hearing this going, these guys have lost their freaking mind. There's no way I'm going to push back on these big companies. I'm telling you, when you do this well, especially if you laid the relational groundwork and you paid the relational rent with the key business people and the stakeholders in various areas of the, the client organization, it's amazing how much traction you actually have where you've got allies on your side that will push back for you because they know you're working to get them the outcome they need. Right. But this, uh, absolutely agree. But, and this, goes back to a comment I said before, and maybe we just didn't really dig into it, is to enable your sellers to feel comfortable doing that, you have to enable them to feel comfortable telling you as a manager, pound sand, I'm going to do it my way. Because because if you're, you can't have both, right? If you want them to be compliant to you in the office, they're going to be compliant with the prospects. Well, that's really profound the way you said that. I like that. And and it's really, it's really important. And so I, you know, I had a, a reputation, and I mentioned this on the show. <laughs> I had a boss finally come to me once. He said, don't you ever say yes to anything? And it's, I'd say, no, <laughs> because you can come to me with advice and say, or direction, say, do something this way. And if I look at that and say, if I do that, Ooh. that's going to fail, then my butt's on the line. So I'd rather have my butt on the line doing things the way I think will be, have a greater chance of success. And so we have to enable our sellers to have that mindset because then they can do exactly what you talked about, go to the customer and push back. And if we don't enable them inside, so they're not going to happen outside. Andy, that you're energizing me. That is so good. And I'll, I'll just add this on top of that. What you're, what you're articulating, however, does require that management puts the right talents in mm-hmm. the right seats and we get the right people in the right roles because the average salesperson at most companies I observe can't pull off what you just described. 
right? Because the, right. ta- the, the business acumen, the experience, the talent, mm-hmm. the gravitas, it's not there. So the manager can't trust them at the level you're advocating for. And that's really where it all comes together, right? You, if you're going to set people free and let them have that type of autonomy, you better have talent in the job and stop being cheap and silly. And you got to be really wise about job descriptions and who you're putting in those roles, right? Well, but also you have to have that in the managers as well. Because if we have managers that bring brought into sales whose only vision of sales is as a metric-driven process – then they're never going to trust the people, right? They're going to trust mm. the numbers. And so having being able to build this trust, and this is, you know, you wrote about this before. You've written about the metrics jockey, I think is your term, right? So, you know, that's really, really important looking at it from the management standpoint. Do you have the people in the management roles who have enough experience in sales to trust the people to go out and execute? All I can say, Andy, is that I wrote this really simple book, and this is the most complex, deep conversation I've had about it yet. So you, you're you opening up like synapses in my mind that haven't fired in a while, and I like it. Well, but I like I, it a lot. I always find that when I write a book and people ask me what the book is about, I say, I don't know. I haven't talked to enough people about it yet. Mm, that's a great reply. Yeah. Because I funny. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the same way. Because, you know, when, and you know, like, because you've done this a few times, you release the book. Yeah, you wrote it mm-hmm. and you went through the editing process and then you've went through it again when it got proofed to check one more time and push back on the bad copy editing. And now I'm, I'm, I've read it once in real hardcover mm-hmm. and now I'm listening to the Audible and I'm still learning about the book. And mm-hmm. I honestly don't know until I start reading reviews and I, everyone I talk to, I say, please do me a favor. Would you share your takeaways with me? Yeah. Tell me your top three or four things that you got, whether they're good or bad. I need to hear it because I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> know but you yeah. don't until it gets absorbed by others so yeah. that's what that's the cool part i also just noticed that you play with your wedding ring while we talk the same way i do uh, all the time <laughs> i know I've had, I've, had, I've, had, I've had mine off half the time we've been talking this is this 25 years those of you who are listening you can't see us we're looking at each other video but yeah um this is my you know 90 dollar gold comfort fit wedding ring from 1994 and my wife always sees me playing with she goes are you sure that's the same one we bought I'm like, yes i have not lost it so yeah, I'm always playing with mine too. I would talk. So, um, all right. So, I wonder. We we're gonna have to do another one of these because we're gonna run out of time. But it's great. Uh, this is so much fun. But uh, another part of the book that I thought was really interesting, which plays into a topic that that um, you know, I, this, I'm passionate about, is that you know you, you quote Ron Delegui. Deleg- I don't know how you pronounce his name. Yep, Delegui. Okay. I don't know either. I just took it in writing. I never, <laughs> I never heard it said before. Okay. Going. I like this. Yeah, hopefully Ron doesn't take offense. And yeah. uh, the quote being is that 99% of all statistics only tell 49% of the story, which I wish it was that optimistic. I think it's, it's way less than that. But we have this problem in sales, is that, and it's, it sort of speaks to a little bit of what you talk about in the book, but it really speaks to what all of us talk about is – there is no scientific data about sales, no scientific studies, longitudinal studies that says this crap works and that crap doesn't work, right? I mean, it's, it's – and I mean, I'm as guilty as – I write about what I know works, you know, in my sphere of the people that I work with and so on. But fundamentally, it's still anecdotal, right? It's, it's, so how do we – what do we do? How do we get past this, this thing? Because, I don't know. Because I don't know, I, I think it's a problem. I think that we have this – it's hard to enroll people in doing what we think are the right things because we can't point other than a few customer successes. We can't really point to saying 
and, I, and part of this is stemmed, too, from the fact that, you know, we look at some of these seminal studies that have been done in behavioral economics, like Daniel Kahneman, you know, thinking fast and slow, he, he starts a book off saying, you know, I, was, I, I forget, it was a priming or anchoring, you know, settled science. And then he has to repudiate himself because, you know, the studies can't be replicated. Um, what do we do about this? This is this yeah, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. The anecdotal part doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you because you're smarter than me and you're looking for the <laughs> I, don't, don't, I don't think so, but yeah, I think so. you know, and, and the reason that I, that I have that quote in the book in that chapter is because of one there's really one reason. It's the CEB challenge yourself fifty seven percent statistic that got way too much play and got over manipulated and was used as a straw man statistic by so many manipulators and charlatans in our industry that wanted to tell you that because research said this mm. one study said buyers get 57% through the buying process before engaging with a salesperson, which may or may not have been accurate, but it, it was with my own eyes. It wasn't because that was not happening in clients mm-hmm. where I was consulting and coaching as we were going to pursue people before they were shopping. But what happened was that the jokers in our industry that wanted to tell you prospecting is dead don't you dare bother pursuing somebody before they get this far down the path because they're not going to talk to you anyway. That's where I feel like, wait a second, we ha- I have to disabuse people of this notion. And I think that's a myth. And I was relieved when serious decision study came out later mm-hmm. saying, no, 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 let's debunk that. And then Mike Schultz from the rain group put out an awesome study mm-hmm. and he talked about, you know, 82% of buyers accepting meetings early on mm-hmm. and then half of those meetings being actually scheduled by traditional methods, telephone and email. So, I, I really felt like I had to say, stop treating the 57% number as gospel because it's hurting a lot of salespeople that are listening to the people manipulating the data. So that's my, that's my take on why I put that there. And I just yeah. wanted to push back. But, but to your point though, you just made is, is diverging just slightly is okay. So we now have, you know, these through inside sales organizations and we see it said, specifically in SAS, you know, these, you know, High volume outbound operations going on. Um, that there's some, you know, it's so bought into that some people think that this is the only way that you can prospect in those industries, which to me, I don't agree with, <laughs> right? I, and I had a, f- a friend who, this was a, f- I don't know, six, seven years ago, was, was, did a study with one client where they did. You know, purely sort of the predictable revenue model prospecting, and they actually put a, a team of three people that worked as an account team, so doing more of an account targeted account approach. And the targeted account approach far outperformed, you know, the specialized mm-hmm. prospecting and so on. So I know it's not necessarily replicable. You know, parts do the product size and complexity and so on. But but have we have we bought in too much into the this? Hey, if, you know, it has to be this way if you're selling a subscription based product. Don't don't take this the wrong way because you live in New York and California. <laughs> I, had this, I had this conversation with someone else. I, a lot of this information and a lot of this advice comes from the coasts. It comes out of Boston. It comes out of Silicon Valley. It and it's and it's and it's experts and sales elitists talking to tech companies and their sales force. So it's hard for me because I live, even though I'm from New York, I live in St. Louis, and yes, I have clients does. clients all over the place. Mm-hmm. And in 90 plus percent of the organizations I'm in, from big defense to big trucks to big data to distribution, 
these conversations don't happen because they don't have these highly defined roles and specialization. And I, I, I walk at some companies, they don't even know what a BDR is, mm-hmm. right? Trish Bertuzzi's book is like, a, what, what is the sales development playbook? I'm like, you need to read this. You know, there's a, so there's a, there's a disconnect because I think a lot of the literature and a lot of the writing is, is talking specifically to the tech world and the guys that work for distributorships that sell abrasives to manufacturing facilities in the upper Midwest have no idea what we're talking about when we get into those arguments. So that's where it's confusing for me. I, I don't even know if I'm the right person to speak to. Have we taken it too far in specialization? Because it's, it's, it's just confusing to me, honestly. In, in the companies I'm in, whether it's yeah. consulting or big defense or whatever it is, mortgages, insurance. I mean, I, it's all, it, every little, you know, nook and cranny. Um, the top salespeople are the ones that do their own prospecting. They may mm-hmm. get some, they may get, there may be an inbound marketing effort. They may even have some type of sales development or inside group that helps a little bit sure. warm the beachhead. But, but the top people, they own it all. They go, it's my funnel. If it's not full, it's on me. Uh, one guy I quoted in the book, he said this in a sales meeting. He says, listen, stop whining and bitching about the quality and the number of appointments the BDRs are creating. You should look at those as gravy, kind of like we look at social security as a percentage of our retirement income. Like yeah. if you're counting on it, you're screwed. Yeah. Let it be extra. So that my message is, just, you got to own the whole funnel. It's yours. Don't point fingers. Don't blame the company. Don't blame marketing. Um, and that's why, and be very careful about listening to the charlatans in the sales industry that tell you, don't pick up the phone, do it all. Use social. Jeb Blunt says, use smoke signals, use every appropriate ethical means necessary to get in front of somebody to get that discovery meeting. So that's my take. Well, I think that's right. Cause I think that what people are not being mindful of is the fact that the pendulum swings, right? Nothing stays the same. And yeah, I have a, have related before a conversation I had with a senior AE who I saw at a conference was someone I'd known for a little while and had been working in SaaS business and and was complaining to me that he said, yeah, you won't believe it, but they want me to prospect. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's look at this for a second. So, all right, you don't want to do this. He says, no. I said, okay, they want you to prospect. And on the other hand, is yeah. You know, in general, you're in this business. Your close rate, your win rate is probably what about twenty percent. Yeah, I said okay. Well, look at it from the perspective of an employer. I look at you and say, hmm, can't prospect, can't close. Wow. Right? I mean, if you good. if you can only close, if you only win twenty percent of your business in my book, you can't close, right? And that's so funny that you know, in so many of these companies, they're hiring quote unquote closers, and their win rates at twenty percent. It's like really. Okay, that's really that's, good. That that really pauses you and makes you think, doesn't it? That's careful what you complain about. Well, but also if you're positioning yourself that I do this, and believe me, yeah, I, at the beginning of my sales career, and I'm yeah, it's four decades. I owe up to it. Uh, <laughs> You've earned it. Yeah, faxes were new. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Faxes were new. <laughs> I get it. Things totally. change. Things change. I mean, if you're, if, if you're not preparing yourself, hey, you're in the wrong business. No, it's funny. You, you, when you talk about the guy complaining about being asked to prospect, it reminds me of something that I, I put in the book about selling at a higher price. I, I, I'm so tired. I don't know if you, you see this in your clients, but I'm so tired of salespeople whining and complaining that either A, they don't have the newest, latest, and greatest toy in tech mm. that they're selling, like they're, they're, they're out featured by the competitor, 
or B, that our price is too high. And I, and I hear salespeople actually say with a half a straight face, you know, if our product was better and our price was lower, I would sell more. And I pause and I look back and I go, if our product was better and our price was lower, I wouldn't need you. Mm-hmm. So be very careful, salespeople. And I, I, I take a kind of a different tack to the book and a little, I go ingest. But for job security and income reasons, stop whining about your product and stop whining and bitching that our price is too high. Because our job as professional sellers is to justify the difference between what we're charging right? Which at a premium versus what the market is charging. If you can't articulate that value and make up for some price premium, then what do we need you for? We would just hang a thing on the internet and go, Hey, we got low price crap. We're Walmart. Mm-hmm. Come on in. Mm-hmm. So be careful. Be careful about the sales guy complaining. He doesn't want to prospect. Be careful complaining that we have a bad product. Be careful complaining that we're priced too high. Your job is to create revenue. So do it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to, hard to improve on that. But, but you look at each step of the process through the way to sit, again, from these conversations I had uh, recently with groups about discovery. As I said, if you're going into discovery and just doing these scripted questions that you know, your management team or your marketing team gives you, I can get a bot to do that. You know, if you can't ask a question that unveils some insight about what the customer, the outcomes the customer wants to achieve, why do I need you? Mm. Right? Same thing. It applies throughout the entire selling. All right. Beautiful. Mike, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we're going to have to do this again. It's been way too long. We should do this again shortly because I, I love talking to you. You <laughs> energize me and you teach me and this is fun. So well, thanks for that. Well, I, I learned from you. And, yet, and we didn't get to the, the parts of the book that I wanted to also talk about. We had some very strong tactical advice for people. Um, one bit of advice about how to, how to get a meeting with people I thought was just genius. Uh, which they can go find it in the book. How's that? That's a great teaser. It's a great teaser. Go find it in the book. And, uh, but we'll have you back. So tell people a little bit about the book and how they connect with you then. Yeah. The book is sales truth and it's off to a flying start as it should be. Yeah. You can, you can check it out at your favorite book reseller. And obviously I'd like you to read the reviews on Amazon to get a feel for what the book is about. Um, you can find me at mikeweinberg.com. Or uh, follow me on different social channels at Mike underscore Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. Perfect. Mike, a pleasure as always. Thank you, Mr. Paul. All right. We'll do it again shortly. Okay, friends, that's it for this archive episode of Sales Enablement. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Mike Weinberg for sharing his wisdom with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review, let us know how we're doing. We'd appreciate that as well. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.